So I got a question for you. As we start out, are you a foodie or do you just see food as fuel? It's just like a bothersome thing that you've got to uh, throw down your throat so that you don't die, okay? So how many of you would say, yep, I'm a foodie? Raise your hand. Oh, we got a whole bunch of foodies. That makes sense. Now, maybe some of you aren't so much foodies that you're taking pictures of your food. I won't implicate you. A few of you actually do that and put that online. Great for you. What about those who are like, yep, food is just fuel. Yep, Randy's in that spot. Okay, Bob LaDuke. Okay, Tammy. Yep, there's more out there. Uh, I have to confess, uh, I was working on this message, and it is about the importance of the table and eating together in relationships, and I'm sitting at my desk eating alone. And I'm like, this is so ironic that this is how this is going down right now. But we've been going through this series called Learning Rhythms, the, uh, Learning the Unforced Rhythms of Grace. And uh, if you haven't been around a while, in a while or you're new to Neighborhood Church, you can catch all of this. We have an audio podcast. Some people like that because they can speed my voice up and, and get the sermon done sooner. I don't understand that. But I sound like Mickey Mouse when you do that. So if you like that, you got that option. You got YouTube, which I think is the best because then you can see visuals and things on the screen and all that stuff. And our, our stream uh, team, if you will, we have 10 people working on volunteers right now behind the scenes, putting the stream together, making sure that those videos are quality. So thank you, team. And those are available to you to catch up and to see where we've been in this series because we've been talking about postures and rhythms. And one of the reasons why we've done so well with one of our full-time most important staff out is that the, that the staff and myself both have been living according to more and more according to God's healthy rhythms, and we're not in a hurry. And as we have ruthlessly eliminated hurry from our schedule, we found so much more peace and productivity. And most of my friends who have other pastors who take sabbaticals, the staff just hates life. That is not the case with us. So these rhythms that I've been talking about, we've been talking about slowing. The idea of intentionally slowing down so that you can hear God, so you can be more present with him, be present to yourself, and be present with others. The rhythm of silence, taking some minutes on a regular basis to listen to what God has to say. And maybe journal it. Solitude. Being alone and the importance, whether it's walking in the park with Jesus or sitting in your blue chair like me next to the fireplace. And lastly, Sabbath. The idea of taking one day every seven days and resting, getting away from all your devices, all of your distractions and work and actually resting and getting filled up so that you're ready for the next six days. So we've been talking about our need for boundaries and limits in creating space in our lives for meeting with God. Sounds like a churchy thing to talk about, right? And a lot of what we've explored have been introverted type of things, right? Silence, solitude, even Sabbath. That's resisting the rest of the culture and, and all the flow, getting out of the flow and being 
And, and all you introverts are like, yes, this is the best series ever. And the extroverts are like, oh man, I got to go to church again. And he's going to challenge me to do something that's really hard. I just want to be with people. This morning we flipped the script. As an extrovert, I'm like, yes, it's about time we talk about being with people again. Because we want to talk about building in rhythms of relationship. Relationship with others in meaningful ways. So this morning is all about the rhythms of the table. And learning from Jesus in what he talks about eating together. Some of you, this is going to be a very easy sell for you. Others, this will be a challenge. You know, more and more people, studies say, are eating alone. And in Japan, in one restaurant, they give you a stuffed animal to eat across from to, stimula- to simulate eating in community. I could not believe this when I found it. I'm like, I got to show this. I got to show this picture. Now, eating together has been a part of the DNA of this place. You Stanleys could tell us that, or you Ikers could tell us that, because the slogan or motto for Neighborhood Church is, the eaten makes the meeting. How many people knew that already? Okay. Fewer and fewer every year, but we still know. We know it's about the food. Eating together, there's something about it. Even Julia Child, about the same time Neighborhood Church was founded, she went on ABC and she said, it's fun to get together and have something good to eat at least once a day. And that's what human life is all about. It's enjoying things. And save, save the liver. Got to save the liver. You didn't know I could do that. I knew I could do that. Donald Miller said this, Jesus does not want us floating through space or sitting in front of our televisions. Jesus wants us interacting, eating together, laughing together, praying together. Loneliness is something that came with the fall. Donald Miller just has a way with words that you go, yeah, that's right. I think our culture, as I think about meals, And even about myself, because I'm a self-proclaimed food-as-fuel person throughout my life. And it's just been the last couple years that I've become more and more a foodie. Where you wake up in the morning, you're like, what do I get to eat today? Does anybody else do that? Okay. That's why I'm constantly trying to make sure my buttons are still buttoned. And that's shifting for me. I think, I don't know why. But I read this quote from Justin Whitmull early. He says this, In a culture of busyness, we seem to have made a strange flip. The solitary feeling of individual productivity and accomplishment is the necessity. Time to stop and eat with others is a luxury. Of course we can't live without eating. So we make a concession to stop and stuff something in our mouths as if food is simply a fuel, which is to say that our bodies are simply machines. I think about my schedule. I schedule my meals around work. I don't think it's just a pastor thing, by the way. I think I schedule 
my meals around work. I think what I'm seeing with Jesus is he scheduled his ministry and his work around meals. Why? Because sometimes the best work and ministry happens in the course of sitting together. So we realize we're not machines, as Justin Whitmull Early says. We're created to work and eat in the context of relationship and community. And we have to examine, then, I believe, our rhythms around eating. Because if the truth be told, even as an extrovert, living in an extroverted family, this is something that's a real growth edge for us. Having a regular rhythm to eat together seems to be disappearing in our house. It doesn't mean we don't love each other. It just means we've got really rotten rhythms that need to be tended to. Why? Well, I'm going to tell you why. Let's look at Jesus. Let's see what he did. Jesus, spoiler alert, was a foodie. He loved to have meals with others. And he even quotes others about his own reputation in Luke 7. He says this, the son of man came eating and drinking, and you say, here's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. The word on the street was, this guy likes to eat and drink, and he's hanging out with the wrong people. He's got the wrong people with the wrong reputation around his table. I did a little informal count through the Gospels, and I found 12 places where Jesus has dinner. I think there's probably more, but that was just my quick count. I also believe that Jesus ate more than 12 times in three and a half years. Therefore, I would assume every meal he had, he had his disciples with him. So he has group dinners all the time. This is one of the reasons why he loves to get up early and get away from them so he could have time with just his father, right? He's not eating alone. He's always eating with friends. Now, this concept is called table fellowship. Big Bible terms for who should I hang out with and eat with and why is it important? And the Jews had really strict laws about who you could eat with. And if you hadn't done certain things or if, if you weren't Jewish, they didn't, they didn't want to eat with you. And meals were not just a place to get fuel in your face. Jewish culture usually ate twice a day, whereas the Greek culture ate three times a day. Meals were an event, an occasion, a time to linger. It was a time to invite people into your home, to your table. And getting invited to someone's house was a really big deal. It was a sign of favor and friendship and a desire to be associated with that person. See, I want to be seen with this person. They're coming to dinner at my house. When Linda and I were 23 and 21, just newly married, we moved to Whittier, California, and we moved across the street from a man named Chuck Sabatino. Chuck is in the very middle of Michael McDonald's wedding party right there. He's got a, a beard, and he's also in a white shirt there with Michael, and that's, the, that's Michael McDonald's band. Michael McDonald, uh, lead singer for the Doobie, Doobie Brothers, great musician, solo act. I'm biased. Chuck was one of Michael's good friends from, from school growing up. And he lived across the street with his wife and two little children. And here we were, fresh on the scene, doing music at the church, living in the church parsonage, if you will. And he invited us over to dinner. 
And I thought, this is a really big deal. I get to hang out with this guy. He's a professional musician. And I don't know how, if he's going to embrace this. I don't know if he's, like, maybe we have to earn his, his appreciation or his love. And I, I'm, I'm nothing. And he's, he's doing all this great stuff. And so we went to the door and he opened the door and, and Linda walked in and he embraced her. And then he embraced me like he had known me for 10 years and kissed me on the cheek and said, I'm so glad you're here. And I went, Wow. I got invited. And then after that dinner, I said, wow, I belong. I knew I belonged because then it was, hey, Andy and Linda, I left tickets for you at Will Call. And so we went to the concert and they took us right down to the very front row. We sat in the front row. And they said, oh, by the way, you've got backstage passes to make sure you can go hang out with the band and eat after, after the show. I knew I belonged. Why? Because I had a meal around the table. One of the rhythms of Jesus was to be radically inclusive about who he invited to the table. He broke all sorts of cultural rules. He was challenging the exclusive nature of you only have dinner with somebody of your own social status or higher because you were trying to climb the ladder. And even where you sat around the table mattered. That's why he gave a parable about that. In the Jewish culture, you just would not want to eat with somebody who was ritually impure, that they didn't wash their hands at the right times. This was not about hygiene, by the way. This was about tradition. Now, this was a holdover from about 150 years before Jesus. What was going on was the priests became very corrupt, and they were actually sacrificing to false gods and doing all sorts of horrible things, adopting customs from the outside. And so, as a reaction, some of these religious leaders they became known as the Pharisees. They look back at Ezra, the book of Ezra, and they say, see, we're supposed to not, not be with other people. Although they're kind of taking it out of context because that was about marrying foreign wives. But they said, nope, you can't even eat with them. You got to do what the priests do for the six weeks before they serve the temple. Everybody's got to do it. Even if you're not a priest, you got to act like a priest. This is what we're doing. No more eating with non-Jews. And they really, their goal was to be holy, to do the right thing, to be separate from the world. And yet what they ended up doing was throwing this heavy yoke of legalism. And so they insisted, you've got to have undefiled hands. If you don't wash your hands at the right time, eh. this is what it's saying in Mark 7. When the Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law had come from Jerusalem, gathered around Jesus, saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were unclean, that is unwashed. And then the passage goes on to explain all of the things that they've added to the Torah. This is not in God's word. They've added these things. So culturally, if you're invited to a meal with somebody, you better wash your hands at the right times and do all of the things and make sure that you're ritually pure. Also, if you were invited to a meal with someone, it was richly symbolic of friendship. 
Like, I, like my story about going to Chuck's house, I believe it was the same way for Matthew as Matthew's called by Jesus out of the tax collector booth. And then almost immediately we see Jesus has invited himself over for dinner. He and the guys and gals, because there were women who were following Jesus as well. Matthew 9, verse 10. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors, those were the bottom of the bottom, oftentimes looked as thieves, and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this and asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Verse 12, on hearing this, Jesus said, is it not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick? But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous but sinners. So there's this favor that's extended. And even the Pharisees didn't like it. They said, no, this is not the way we've done it. You're hanging out with people with a really bad reputation. Jesus is like, yep, they need, these are the people that I came to reach. These are the people that I came to show mercy and give love to. As we think about the table, I believe extended families in the, in the New Testament, as we see them gathering for meals, it's time for people once again to realize that they're part of a group, a part of a family, that they had a role to play. If you've ever sat down with your family at dinner, everybody seems to have a role, and if you don't, mama will tell you what your role is, right? This is what you're doing. And the, I believe that the table is where much of our identity is shaped, In the Greek culture, after a, a dinner or a formal banquet, it would be a symposium. This is, a, if you've heard this word before, symposia, where the person who's leading the dinner then would give wit and wisdom and um, some teaching and some dialogue. And this is what we see with Jesus over and over and over. He takes these opportunities at meals to teach. Luke 14 Jesus is at a Pharisee's house, verse 1, on one Sabbath when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. Skipping down to verse 7, when he noticed how the guests picked his, their places of honor at the table, he told this parable. So this is showing you he's there, he's eating, he's being watched, this is strange, and then he steps into this teaching role and gives some parables. If you were estranged from someone, if you had a strained relationship, if you invited someone for a meal, that would be the way to reconciliation. John 21, after Peter has denied Jesus three times, he is lower than a snake's belly, as they say in Texas. And yet, Jesus says to them, he's on the, on the shore. This is after he's been resurrected. He's up in Galilee. Bring some fish that you've caught. In verse 12, Jesus said to him, come and have breakfast. And in so many ways, John 21 is, is Jesus reinstating Peter into a place saying, yes, come and feed my sheep. Yes, you're still accepted. Yes, you're still loved. A way to, to be reconciled to Peter. That's so beautiful. And lastly, if you betrayed someone or you were unfaithful to them after you had shared the table with them, Oh, that was so disgraceful. It was an awful betrayal. And that leads to the most famous dinner of all, the Last Supper. 
Because in Mark 14, it tells us that the disciples prepare for Passover. And when evening comes, Jesus arrives with the 12 and they were reclining at the table eating. And in Mark's telling of this account, the climax is this. I tell you the truth, Jesus says, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. The weight of betrayal with someone who has shared your table is like you're a family member disgracing you. My son is acting in a musical right now called Godspell. And Linda and I were able to go and see the dress rehearsal this week. He's playing Judas. So I got to see Judas betraying Jesus and Jesus dying. And this is the second time my son has played Judas. I don't really know what that means, but, but this kind of betrayal, whether it's your son acting it out or not, is so, so, so painful even to watch in a play. Now, this idea of being around the table is pulled into the, the later parts of the New Testament then. We see in Philemon, that book that you read all the time, I'm sure, verse 12, no, I'm sorry, Jude, another little tiny book at the end. Jude 12 talks about a love feast. Love feast. Boy, doesn't that just feel like the 70s came back and bit us? Do you know that the Thursday of Holy Week is historically the time where you would have a love feast, which is to celebrate the Last Supper and the command of Jesus to love one another that was given there in John 13 during the Last Supper. And so historically... Thursday, Monday, Thursday is what they call it, is a service oftentimes with foot washing and love for one another, celebrating that. See, we're coming up on Holy Week, so I thought that was interesting. But early churches met in homes, so they would have all of the stuff than to have a full meal. And so this idea of a love feast was a full meal, but it also included this breaking of bread, the Lord's Supper that Jesus talks about, there in the Last Supper, as well as Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians 11. The, the key terms associated with it is sharing together and giving thanks together. Now, we celebrated Holy Communion. It's called the Lord's Supper. The way that started was an actual meal together with fellow believers, where they would share stories and they would find a place to belong. It was a beautiful thing, a love feast. And yet by about 150 AD, Justin Martyr, as he writes, explains that the Eucharist, or what we would call Holy Communion, had been separated from a full meal, maybe for practicality's sake, maybe it's because somehow they were not worshiping in homes any longer, they didn't have kitchens, I don't know. But then all of a sudden, it was just a piece of bread and some wine. What it look like for us to reinstate communion in the form of an actual meal? I think that'd be really fun. That for a different day. Um, so, what is it about this eating thing? Besides the fact that it's great to eat, it's all about our future. You see, our future is actually a feast. Some of you think about your future in heaven as like floating around on clouds, like playing harps. Great. If you want to do that, I think you're going to have the option. It's all about eating. If you read the New Testament, let me just, really quick, 
Revelation 19.9, the angel said to me, write, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. He added, these things are the true words of God. That's what we have to look forward to in heaven. An incredible meal. I'm in. I'm in. Even you food as fuel people, will be, you'll be foodies by then. You'll be transformed. You'll have a new body. There's all the things. Isaiah 25 in the Old Testament. On, this mount, on, the mountain, the Lord, on this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a rich feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that unfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove the disgrace from his people. From all the earth, the Lord has spoken. Yes, come Lord Jesus. Maranatha. And Matthew 8, Jesus himself says, I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. So that's our future. So where do we go with this? How do we think about food? Can you believe I'm preaching about food? I talked about sleep last week. I'd never done that in 30 years either. How do we think about food and the importance of eating together? So first of all, I believe food points us to need and truth. So the need to eat reveals three things, I think. First of all, our dependence on God. Because unlike God, we are dependent on food to live. Food is a daily reminder of our dependence on God. And we're created to hunger, not because it's irritating, because I think we were made to feast in God's economy and on God's generosity. And our hunger to feast is actually a good way we were made. It's not irritating. So our dependence on God is is one thing. Secondly, our dependence on each other. We can become so independent, but God wants us to be mutually dependent. So think about this. If you were out on the farm, you would be planting and growing and harvesting to prepare food. It's impossible to do all of that by yourself to survive. You, you would need others to help you. And this makes us really different than anything else in the animal kingdom. And even though we have a modern way of getting food, we go to the store and we buy it, we take it off the shelf, and we don't really always think about where, how many people it took to get that milk into the, the cold section or that bread to be made. There are a lot of people that we're depending on. Every meal symbolizes a huge web of dependence on our neighbor and their dependence on us. Lastly, I believe that our need to eat reveals our dependence on creation. Full disclosure, as a part of my social science degree at Chico State, my emphasis was environmental issues. I love the earth. I, like the Celtic Christians that have come before me, long to see the earth loved and cherished and protected. And so I believe that our need to eat shows our dependence on creation. Think about this. We live in a web of mutual sacrifice. Every single thing we eat, either plants or meat, Every single bite signifies a moment where something died to give you life. 
So then when we take that thing in and it becomes our future life, there's something distinctly Christian about this, isn't there? It's fascinating to me that the fact of our ongoing life depends entirely on the sacrifice of another life on our behalf. I just think that points us, then creation once again points us to Jesus, how he gave his life so that we could embrace life to the fullest. But what about when we see food as fuel and we fall into that trap? Well, I believe that we're not grateful to God necessarily fully. We're entitled and assume it's my right to eat this food. We're not grateful to each other. We create systems of food that just embody exploitation of our neighbors who grow, who transport, who harvest, who repair and serve our food. And then we aren't grateful to creation. We consume the earth's food greedily and carelessly as if the world were ours to binge on and trash instead of ours to steward and cultivate into flourishing. Even the way that we use our land is not biblical oftentimes by allowing it to rest and not overuse. Well, so how do we apply this? (laughs) Besides going out to eat right now together. Justin Early says this, given that our communal life revolves around our need to eat, we may say that the table is the center of gravity for loving our neighbor. The daily habit of eating at least one meal with others, there's his rhythm, is important precisely because it asks us to rearrange our priorities around the communal table and to acknowledge that we are made for food and for each other. For generations, people have seen our home or our house where we live is oftentimes called a school of love. I don't know if you've ever heard that before historically. That it's where we learn to love. If this is the case, the place that we spend a lot of time, it's a place of formation, then this is the place where we learn to practice the command of Christ to love. And I would argue that the table is the center of that learning to love. I saw this cute little thing that says, cooking is love made visible. Some of you are like, I hate cooking. You just need a friend and a good recipe and maybe some good music in the background and maybe a fun drink to drink at the same time. Y'all just aren't doing it right. Think about the values of love that are communicated over food and that we learn. We learn to serve each other. We pray together. We share stories. We laugh. We clean up after each other. We find belonging. So where do you start? Completely practically. So I've been reading this book, The Common Rule. I've quoted Justin Whitmull early uh, several times now. And um, online you can find this, um, thecommonrule.org. if you Google it, and she, he's got all of this stuff online, so you don't have to take pictures of the screen or anything like that, unless you really want to, in which case the screen is there for you. Um, he talks about eight bullet points that he uses as targets to live his life of love for God and others. And he has four daily habits, kneeling prayer three times a day, one meal with others, one hour with his phone off, and scripture before phone. You see, I'm talking about his second point. It doesn't have to be on your rule of life, if you will, as you maybe think about what your bullet points might be to try to keep you on track to 
lead a life of love, but you see relationship baked in right here in his daily habits, but you also see his first weekly habit is one hour of conversation with a friend. I've also put that out there as a goal for you to consider, that we need relationship. We need to do life in relationship. What would it look like to have one meal a day with other people? Some of you are like, I got this nailed, so we need to learn from you. The rest of us used to have it nailed and we have decided that we're now eating in front of the television all the time. Or we're distracted with our devices where we're sitting across from each other. Have you seen people out on a date and they're both on their phones? I'm like, what's so interesting on your phone that you're not looking at that beautiful person across from you? What are you doing? Well, they're getting into rotten rhythms, in my opinion, that move them away from loving one another. Call me old-fashioned. I just believe that maybe our devices need to go into a box when we eat. So he's shooting for one meal a day with others. Could you do that? Some of you families are like, oh, man, we got moving parts. You have no idea, like the, the air traffic control. Yep. But the question is, are we, are we arranging our life around work instead of around meals? If you believe what I'm saying to you today is true, if you believe that this first century practice of eating together and its power is still true today, and I do believe it is, but it's up to you to decide whether it's true, then one of your rhythms must revolve around eating together. Now, is it true that when I eat with one of my coworkers, I'm experiencing this? Absolutely. I don't have to have my entire family around the table in order to have these powerful, precious moments. That's why if one way to apply this is to think about your coworkers. Is, is there one lunch a week where you say, I'm going to have lunch with coworker or coworkers, and I'm just going to say, hey, we're all going get to eat, get together and have pizza around the workroom table or whatever. Let's do it. Just be together. If you're single, this might be a challenge, right? You're, this is already painful that I'm talking about it. Like, I'm, you're poking me like a, sh- a sharp stick in the eye, Andrew. And if you're single, that means you've got to get really creative. Some of my single friends will go to the same restaurant every week, let's say for breakfast, not put their little ear pods in, just be present, build relationship with that same waitress or waiter person that waits on them every week, building relationship with the people who sit around them. It's a little bit different but it's true. For you families, it might just be, are you going to choose breakfast or dinner and stick to it? For some of you, after church is your best time. Lastly, as I was walking past our table this morning, We have all of our tax prep stuff spread all over it. Now, you guys have already finished all your taxes because you're really on it. But the Burchetts, we're still working on it. And I'm thinking, I'd have to really, I'd have to clear that, that off in order to have a meal at that table. Some of you need to clear off your table and not use it for a desk, not use it for whatever you have. The laundry can get folded somewhere else. The table is for eating and spending time with others. We got to do some cleaning. It's cool. It's easy. If you're going to sit down together, isn't it great to have 
You can have side conversations with the people that you're with, but at some point, stop and have one conversation all together. Make sure you're sharing. It could be, hey, what's your highs and lows for the day? Okay, Don, you go first. What was your high? What was your low? Tell me what happened today. Okay. Kayla, what was your high? What was your low? Or what was uh, the best thing that happened today? What was the worst thing that happened? And one funny thing that you saw. Any age, any kind, or what, what are you thankful for today? Something intentional. Last point, and then we'll be done. You know, I think many of us feel like sharing the hope that we have in Jesus is really hard to walk up to somebody and say, let me just share the four spiritual laws with you. Four spiritual laws are great. But sometimes that feels hard. That's hard. It feels forced. But I'll tell you what's really powerful. When one of our neighbors accepts the invitation to come over and eat with us and sits at our table. It's a game changer. We share our life and the gospel as well. And sometimes they just need to see your life is different. Your hope is somewhere else. And interacting, then all of a sudden, I've had more conversations about Jesus around a meal or even a coffee or something simple or d'oeuvres. It doesn't have to be like some feast. It's a powerful way for us to share who we are and who Jesus is. And so I would advocate if you're going to eat with others, pull up an empty chair and do what my friend does. Just always make a little bit more than you need. Then you get leftovers. Why don't you stand with me? I don't know that I need to convince you all to eat. I think there's enough foodies here to win the day. But I do think that we can be much more intentional in loving one another by eating together. It almost seems too simple to preach. But when I look at my own life, I realized I needed this message. So I assumed probably someone else did too. So prayer folks, if you'd come forward, we'll pray for you. We'd love to pray for you. Jesus, uh, in the midst of these days, Would you unclutter our schedule, allow us to be so intentional about sharing a meal with others? I pray for incredible relationships to be strengthened because we had this conversation. Lord, I pray that we would step into that place of delight that Julia Child had in her mind all those years ago. I pray, God, that you would teach us how to create places where people can belong and thank you for your goodness and your grace. I pray for those for this is where this is a really hard message to hear. I pray for special grace, flexibility. Help us to step into some of those places and to really be near to the lonely. Thank you that you, give, you put the lonely into family, and this is family. And so we say yes to helping, serving, loving, and eating together. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for coming, y'all. We'll see you next week, Palm Sunday.